Before we go to the sermon, I wanted to say a word about the Starting Strong event that uh, Karen mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, this is for anyone who is uh, engaged or um, newly married. It's possible there could be someone who in this room who one of you knows you're going to be engaged and the other doesn't. That's a possible, but uh, so you're kind of in that. But uh, anyway, we, we really want to just offer this weekend as a, to, to help you have a strong start, a strong foundation for the beginning of your, your new life together in marriage. And so um, it'll be a Friday night, a Saturday, and we've cleared the calendar. No KUK State basketball game this weekend. We checked that. But uh, we're going to be looking at topics like connecting in marriage, uh, faith, finances, conflict, and repair, a healthy sexual relationship, living on mission as a couple. There'll be opportunities to have mentor couples be, be part of this. And so uh, we think it would just be a fantastic uh, start. And part of the reason, the impetus for this is uh, as a church that has a lot of younger people, uh, the, the pastoral staff, we do a lot of premarital counseling. And uh, so this will become can become part of how we approach our premarital counseling, at least in part, and so it'd be really helpful for that. Um, and so if you know you're going to, you know, ask one of us to do your wedding, want the premarital counseling, we'd really encourage you to think about this. Again, it's for everyone. Um, if it, this weekend doesn't work, of course, we'll continue to do our premarital counseling the way we have done. But uh, we just, uh, yeah, I wanted to commend this to you. We think it's going to be a great, uh, great weekend. <clears throat> so in the early years of our marriage, speaking of newly married, one of the things that we uh, got on a kick for our date nights was uh, we got on an Alfred Hitchcock um, movie uh, run. And so like every time we'd go get a movie, we would try to find an Alfred Hitchcock movie. And I, this would probably actually predate Blockbuster. I can't even remember where we went, but uh, I was gonna watch, we'd go watch the movie and we'd go to a store. Listen, kids, we'd have to go to a store and we'd find the Alfred Hitchcock section and we'd find this little plastic thing called a VHS tape and you'd put it in this machine and you could watch a movie. I mean, seriously, ask your parents. It was a real thing. We had to actually do it that way. But um, so we watched a lot of those, North by Northwest, Rear Window, Vertigo, To Catch a Thief, uh, Dial In for Murder, all these. But one we watched also was The Birds. Some of you remember that? Yeah. Uh, see cringe faces. And if you don't know the, about the movie, it's, it's, a, it's, it's about people in this small town trying to avoid a swarm of birds that begin to attack. <laughs> Sounds great, right? That's what it was about. But anyway, at the end of the movie, um, the main characters, they're barricaded in this house, and all night long, these birds are attacking, trying to get into the house. And at some point during the night, one of the characters, a woman, hears something up, in, up, up in the upstairs, and so she goes to investigate, and the birds have broken through the attic, and uh, she's attacked by the birds. She, she's rescued, but she's in bad shape. The next morning, Mitch, who's one of the main characters, he's preparing a car to, to try to get them to San Francisco. And uh, spoiler alert, the birds have stopped attacking. And he walks out to the car and gets it ready. And then they all walk out together, and there's birds all over the, the ground. They're on the rail. They're on the house. They're on the wires. And the four characters, they get into the car and they drive down the lane, and they take a right, and then they take a left, and they disappear. All the while, the birds continue to watch them ominously. Like, that's it. That's the ending. But it leaves you with a kind of suspense, because you're going like, like, do they make it? Have the birds actually stopped attacking? Are they going to attack again? Will they make it to San Francisco? What is going to happen? You just don't know. But it leaves you pondering what's going to happen next. 
You know, Luke does sort of a similar thing in the book of Acts. He's not creating uh, that kind of suspense. But as he wraps up, he has an indie that leaves us pondering, what's next? What's next in terms of the movement of the gospel? In Acts 28, uh, Paul is finally in Rome. Over the last eight chapters, Luke has described these events that have led to Paul being in Rome, and now he is there. He spends nearly a third of the book of Acts describing these events that led Paul to being where he is now. third of Acts. Surely Luke is building up to this ending where Paul heroically preaches the gospel before Caesar. That's why he's there, right? He's appealed to Caesar to appear before Caesar. That seems like the perfect epic ending, right? Paul before Caesar proclaiming the gospel. But that's not what Luke does. Let's take a look at what he does. Verse 16, uh, he tells us Paul's in Rome. He tells us that he is under house arrest. He's, has a, he has a guard with him at all times, possibly chained. Has a private dwelling, but, but under house arrest. And, and Paul wants us to think about how Paul, the prisoner, spends his time in Rome. And Paul spends his time in Rome doing what Paul has always done. He continues to preach the good news of Christ. And so I want to look at first Paul's evangelistic outreach while he's under house arrest. And then we're going to look at the last two verses, how Paul ends the book of Acts. There's two meetings. There's a, a first meeting and a second meeting. The first meeting goes like this. Paul, um, initially, he wants them just to understand his legal situation. So verse 17, it says, After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So he, he gets in Rome. Three days later, he calls the Jewish religious leaders to come to him. He does what he always does as he goes to a new city. It's to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, right? But normally he would go to the synagogue, but he can't go to the synagogue because he is under house arrest. So he calls for them to come to him. And he declares that he's, he had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers. And yet, despite this, he was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of of the Romans, and, and he's referring back to when he was arrested, when he was in the temple and falsely accused, and there was the riot, and he's arrested by the Romans at that point. He goes on, when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Again, at, at every point, as he's examined by the Romans, they declare his innocence. The tribunal, Felix, Festus, Agrippa, they all found him innocent. But because the Jews objected so strongly to, be, to him being set free, he had no choice but to appeal to Caesar. And so that's why he's in Rome. But he wants these Jewish leaders to understand that in appealing to Caesar, he's not bringing any charge against the Jews. And you can imagine, if you know some of the history about the, the Jewish people in Rome, uh, why they might have a concern. It was not all that many years before when Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome, right? And so the last thing they wanted was any kind of trouble stirred up regarding them in Rome. And so you, you can imagine that they might be concerned if Paul is bringing a charge against them. He assures them he's bringing no charge. He's simply seeking to clear his name. Verse 20, for this reason, therefore, 
I have asked to see you and to speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And, and as he goes on, he assumes that the Jews in Rome have heard reports about him. But, but in verse 21, they, they state they've not heard anything about Paul. And uh, most commentators state that this is kind of unusual because surely the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem would have sent some kind of communication to the leaders in Rome about this prisoner, Paul, who was stirring up so much trouble in their opinion. And yet, they had not heard anything. And so, it's possible that uh, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had decided we really don't have a case against Paul and they didn't send letters. Or it's possible that they had sent letters and those letters were still on a ship that had not yet made its way there, right? We looked at this four to five month journey it took for Paul to get there and uh, he had just recently arrived. So it's possible they're still on their way. We don't know. They say they have not heard anything about Paul. At this point, the first meeting ends. Things are cordial. Paul's declared his innocence. He assures the Jewish leaders that he's not in Rome seeking to cause any problem for the Jews with Rome. The Jewish leaders depart and they express that they want to hear from Paul what his views are about Christianity, which they call a sect that is everywhere spoken against. Some days later, there's a second meeting. In this meeting, Paul is not concerned about his legal status. He's talking about the kingdom of God, and he's proclaiming the message of Christ. Look at verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And so apparently some who came to that first gathering, they spread the word, hey, come join us. There's a larger number that join him. And of course, Paul's happy to speak to as many as he can. His heart was always for the, the Jews, his, his people, to come to faith in Christ. So the opportunity to speak to more, I'm certainly he was, he was happy about that. Luke tells us Paul spoke about the kingdom of God. He spoke about the kingdom of God, which refers to the reign and rule of God. I mean, where, where God is reigning and ruling, that's where God's kingdom has come. And the Jewish people, they had long anticipated God's reign over the world, and that it would be fulfilled when his Messiah came. But they thought in terms of political, military conquests and, and victory and, and that kind of thing. And yet Jesus came in a very different way, right? He came and, and he, 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 he kind of extended the kingdom through humility. He came by dying as a servant, suffering and dying. Paul testified about this, the kingdom of God. But he was also trying to convince them about Jesus, that, that Jesus was the fulfillment of their hopes, that he's Israel's promised Messiah. And, and he's, Luke tells us that Paul tried to persuade them by speaking both from the, the law of Moses and, and from the prophets. I think that would have been an amazing thing to, to sit with Paul as he's teaching about Christ through the Old Testament scriptures. It's been the case everywhere Paul's preached, there were different responses. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. So Luke seems to suggest they, they were continuing in this conversation. They were having you know, their disagreements, but it was somewhat peaceful at that point. But Paul says one last thing, and they're on their way. And, and what Paul says is he cites a passage from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 
6, 9 through 10. That's what we find in verses 26 and 27. And he applies what the Spirit said to the, the Jewish people through Isaiah in Isaiah's day. He applies what, what Isaiah said then to the Jewish people of his day. And what, what, what Isaiah had said to the Jewish people of his day is that they heard, but they didn't understand. They saw, but they didn't perceive. In refusing to listen to God, their, their hearts grew dull. Their ears could barely hear, and their eyes were closed. And so Paul is given a warning to these Jewish people gathered with him that if they continue to refuse to listen, if they refuse to uh, re repent and come to God, if they continue to reject God's message, they are in danger of their hearts becoming hardened and being unable to respond spiritually. It was this word that caused them to leave. But Paul said one last thing. He said, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. This is what he said at the end when he, when he was preaching uh, on the steps in the temple, right? That the gospel had gone to the Gentiles, and that's when the mob erupted again. I'm sure uh, this did not go well in saying this. In saying that the Gentiles would listen, he's saying they will listen, they will respond, they will repent, they will believe. And that's exactly what Paul has been seeing as the gospel has gone from city to city. Some Jews would believe sometime, but many would reject it. And he would go to the Gentiles, and many would believe. This is Paul's evangelistic outreach while he's a prisoner. I mean, think about it. Just three days after arriving, after a long, eventful trip, he's under house arrest, likely chained to a guard. And what do we find Paul doing? Scheming how to get out of there, complaining about his situation. He's doing what he always did. He continues to preach Christ. He continues to do what God has called him to do, even while in chains. And so that brings us to these last two verses, where Luke gives us the last of several progress reports. Over the, the, the course of Acts, there's been these, these progress reports where he talks about the spread of the gospel, how the gospel is going forward. This is the last of his progress reports. And, and really, his summary statement is that the gospel is unhindered. The gospel's unhindered. Look at what he says. 30, verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Two years, Paul was in confinement there. I think he'd been in confinement two years before in Caesarea, right? I mean, he's been in confinement for a long time. But during this time, he says, Paul welcomed all who came to him. And it's likely that there were Jewish people that came, continued to come, that there were Gentiles that, that continued to come. And what did Paul do? He proclaimed the kingdom of God and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what we've just seen him doing. And he did this with all boldness and without hindrance. Again, he's arrested, he's enchained, he's in chains. But the gospel is not chained. Luke wants us to understand that nothing can stop the gospel. Not Rome, not Jewish religious leaders, not prison, nothing. It continues to go out. It continues to go forward. This actually was a very fruitful time of ministry for, for Paul, as we, we know from other letters. Uh, it was during this time that he wrote Philippians, he wrote Colossians, he wrote Ephesians, he wrote the letter to Philemon, 
during this time. In, in Philippians chapter 1, he, he actually writes that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Like, like this is really working out. The gospel's going forward. My circumstances have led to the advancement of the gospel. He says, because the whole Praetorian guard are, are hearing. I mean, think about it. Every day there's a, a soldier chained to him who's Paul's either talking to him or this soldier is hearing him talk to the people that are coming to him. And, and the gospel is spreading among the Roman guards. And he also says in that passage in Philippians that, and that the, the believers have far more courage to speak about Christ because of his circumstances. And so he's in jail, he's in prison, but the gospel is unhindered. It's a very fruitful time. Now, just back up again and think about the flow of what Luke has been doing in Acts. Kind of the big picture here. This ending is sort of strange, right? It's sort of abrupt. Luke leaves so many loose ends, right? He has spent almost eight chapters talking about Paul's journey to Rome and that he's there to appeal before Caesar. But he doesn't tell us what happens to Paul. Did he go to trial? Did he appear before Caesar? Was he arrested? Was he executed? Did he live? What happened to Paul? He didn't tell us. It's actually kind of strange, right, when you think about an ending. Many commentators believe that Paul was released after this imprisonment, and he had a a few more years of of ministry. When you look at 2 Timothy, that seems to point to a later imprisonment, and, and many believe that he was eventually executed after that later imprisonment. But see, Luke doesn't tell us what happens to Paul because his objective has never been to present a biography of Paul. Rather, he's been describing the spread of the gospel. That has always been his point. And that's why he talked about Peter and all the others. And that's why he's been talking about Paul. And that's what he wants us to be thinking about. This ending was not a mistake. Luke didn't like run out of parchment paper. He didn't forget about Paul. He didn't get busy with something else. He just doesn't want our focus to be on Paul. He wants it to be on the spread of the gospel, what God is doing regarding the gospel. He doesn't want us to ponder what's happening next with Paul, but what will happen next with the gospel. That's why he leaves us with this kind of ending. So we think about that. There are a couple of takeaways that, that I want us to think about. And one of them he says explicitly, but the other is intentionally implied. And the thing he says explicitly is that the gospel is unhindered, right? He says it with all boldness and, and unhindrance, without hindrance. In, in, our, in, the, in the original text, it's the very last word. It's the last word in most of our English translations. The gospel is unhindered. And what he says explicitly here, it's what Luke has been demonstrating through all of Acts, right? At no point has opposition st- spread, stopped the spread of the gospel. Over and over, Jewish leaders tried to stop this movement. Stephen was martyred. Peter and others were thrown in jail. Paul and his co-workers experienced severe opposition in city after city. Paul is now in prison, but the gospel has continued to march forward. Against incredible opposition, that small group, there was 120 gathered in the upper room, right, when, when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit and they began to preach Christ. From that 120, that small group of believers in, Je- in Jesus, the gospel has spread 
all over the world. And there's believers now in Asia and Europe, and it's now come to Rome, the most powerful city in the world. The gospel is unhindered. And I think for us as believers living where we do in the United States, in this time of our history, we really need to hear what Paul is saying. We need to contemplate what, and reflect on what Paul is demonstrating about an unhindered gospel. We're living in a time where as believers, we're losing cultural power, social influence, where we're increasingly marginalized. A lot of times our response to that is to fight to stay in the center. We, we fight to hold on to political power. We fight to, to try to be in the middle of things because we think that's how the gospel will go forward. And yet, Luke has demonstrated in Acts that a small group of believers, incredibly marginalized, had no power, had no social influence, who faced all kinds of oppositions, they changed their world. They remained loyal to Jesus. They prayed. They walked in the power of the, the Holy Spirit, and the gospel continued to advance. I think Luke would want to have us not be wringing our hands over our current situation here, but that we would look to the future with great hope because the gospel is unhindered. It moves forward whatever our situation is. It moves forward against all kinds of opposition. Let's think about moving into the future with great hope because the gospel is unhindered. The other thing that Luke Cindy points to, and this is what is implied. I think this is where he wants us to ponder and think a little bit. He ends abruptly like he does because he wants us to consider what's next. And what's next is it's our turn. It's our turn. The abrupt ending asks us, leads us to ask, like, what is my place? What is my role? Luke wants us to understand that not only is the gospel unhindered, the spread of the gospel is unfinished. The gospel has come to Rome. It's come to the very heart of the Roman Empire. And that's going to be important for the continued spread of the gospel. I mean, Roman roads and all these things and how things traveled out of Rome. I and mean, it's going to be important for the spread of the gospel. But Rome was not the ends of the earth. Rome was not the ends of the earth that Jesus talked about in Acts 1.8. Remember what Jesus said right at the start of this book before he ascended back into heaven? He said to the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Luke's readers would have known that Rome, though it was the seat of power, was not the ends of the earth. I mean, there's Spain. There's things that are so much more remote and, and farther out there. They would have understood that there's work yet to be done. The ending of Acts is not the ending of the story. It's the opening of the rest of the story. And I believe Luke wants us to ask, what is my part now? Now that it's my turn in this story. Obviously, there are all kinds of applications, and I hope that uh, as you go into this week, you will ponder what does it mean that is your turn. I think there's all kinds of 
things that, that it means. But I want to give you one very kind of focused, specific application that relates to this time of year. Um, if you've been through Rooted, you've been exposed to a little model we call the BLESS model. We didn't come up with it. Many churches use it, but, but it's a very simple, practical, kind of sane way to think about reaching out to other people. And so BLESS is an acrostic that stands for B. You begin with prayer. You, you begin praying for people. You pray for those that, that you don't know if they know God or not. You just you begin praying. L is listen. You, we, we seek to get into conversations and, and care about people and hear their story and find out what's going on and, and genuinely be present, right? We, we hear and we listen. E stands for eat. We eat with them. We offer hospitality. We grab coffee. We, we enter into deeper relationship. We spend time with people. S stands for serve. We, we find ways to serve them. We find ways to let them serve us. It deepens the relationship. And the final S is share. We, we at some point want to share our story of how we've come to faith in Jesus. It's this very simple little way to keep on our minds, kind of a, a logical, sane way to build bridges towards people that don't know God. I want to talk, so my recommendation, my thought here is on the first one, the B, about beginning with prayer. Next Sunday starts Advent, these, these weeks of preparation for the coming of Jesus. What if during this Advent this year, knowing that it is now your turn, you simply ask God this question. God, is there someone that you want me to invite to a Christmas service? God, is there someone that you want to invite to a Christmas service? Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you must. I'm not saying go write down five names and go invite them right now. What I'm recommending, what I'm encouraging is that you just simply pray about it. Talk to God about it. God, is there someone that you would want me to say, hey, I'd love you to join us at our Christmas service. We, we actually have these little uh, cards that you could grab. We'd love everyone to grab one just so you have it. But the idea is, what if God is stirring in someone's heart? What if the Spirit of God is preparing someone? They're, they're thinking about deeper things in life. They're searching. They're trying to figure out the meaning of life. They're trying to figure out what their life is all about. What if God is stirring and he knows that? And then you begin to pray and he helps you understand and puts this person on your heart to invite. We're going to have two services. Christmas, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday, so we'll have two in the morning, two in the evening. That's 1,600 seats. There's plenty of room to invite people. Again, I'm not saying you must I'm not challenging that you should. I'm just saying, what if you ask God about it? Ask God, is there someone that you want me to invite? It's a very practical way to take action on the reality that it's my turn. Here's how that might look. Let's say it's with a neighbor, coworker, classmate. You're at some point in relationship with them, having a conversation, and you could just simply ask, um, Sam, do you ever go to church at Christmas? And if he says, yes, we're going this year, that's great. You can have a conversation about that. You're going to learn more about their story, his story. But if he says, well, I did growing up or, you know, used to or no, it's not really part of the plan. You could just simply say, would you like to come with me to our Christmas service this year? It's that simple. And if he says no, that's okay. But, and it could create some kind of conversation. But if he says yes, you make a plan and, and you spend time you know, maybe sit with them and, and uh, spend that time with them. It's a very simple action item in terms of it's now our turn. Again, there's a hundred things you can do, but in terms of this season, 
Let me encourage you to think about that. God, is there someone that you want me to invite to our Christmas service? It is a season where people think about going to church that don't. And uh, it, who knows, it may be the opportunity that helps them understand the gospel for the first time and they enter into that saving relationship with Christ. Bottom line, Luke, I believe Luke wants us to know that God is still at work, that we're still on mission, that the unhindered gospel is still going forward and we are now part of it. The story is still being written. You know, we named this sermon series Loyal to Jesus. Loyal to Jesus. And we've seen how the early disciples walked this out. And the challenge for all of us is to continue to walk as disciples who are loyal to Jesus. And the story that Luke has told us in Acts that in the, in, in, and finished with in this, this ending tells us that one critical way that we stay loyal to Jesus is by continuing the work that he started. We continue to spread the good news of God's kingdom that has come. We continue to proclaim a Savior who makes it possible for anyone to come to know God. you pray with me? Father, we thank you for Luke, and we thank you for this book, and we thank you for its message to us. Father, thank you that uh, through, down through history, the gospel continues to go forward in an unhindered way. And uh, God, may we have hope as we live in a time where, where we are increasingly marginalized, but, but help us to see what, what you did here with this group of people and what you have done and are doing all around the world through people who are marginalized and insignificant in their culture, but they believe you, they walk with you, and they proclaim the good news of Christ. Father, may we move forward with great hope that you are continuing to seek and save the lost, that the gospel continues to go forward, that now we are part of the story. May we walk as men and women and children who are loyal to you and the things that are important to you. May we live this out day by day in a way that honors you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.